Welcome back to the channel. Republicans and Democrats in the Senate have agreed, at least tentatively, on a package of legislation in response to calls for more gun control. As you're probably aware, Republicans typically have no appetite for gun control legislation. The reason for that is their constituents have no appetite for gun control legislation. In fact, they're highly opposed to such legislation. That means Republicans who want to get reelected cannot support gun control measures. One might go so far as to say that gun control legislation is one of the primary issues that distinguishes the political left from the political right. With that in mind, let's see what Senate Republicans and Democrats have tentatively agreed to that's going to come up for a vote here at some point in the future. And I think what they've done and haven't done in that tentative legislation is interesting. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. We'll start with what is in the tentative legislative package. First of all, red flag laws. Well, not really. <laughs> the reason is Congress has no constitutional authority to impose red flag laws on any of the states of the Union. The way our system of federalism works and the way the Constitution is structured, Congress has authority to enact red flag laws for federal possessions and territories, but not the states of the Union. So the best Congress can do in terms of red flag laws, if you support red flag laws, is to do what this legislation proposes, this tentative legislation proposes, which is to give the states that enact red flag laws a bunch of money. Literally. That's all they're doing. If a state enacts red flag laws, Congress will give that state a bunch of money. The next item is an investment in mental health and telehealth. Now, I want to read the exact language here because I, I don't want to get this wrong. First of all, I should tell you that this is Congress's usual thing. They're going to make a major investment in these areas. Whenever Congress doesn't have the authority to do something, it does this, quote, major investment where it just throws money at the problem. And that's exactly what they're doing here. But what they're throwing money at, I think, is the important part. The major investment is to increase access to mental health and suicide prevention programs. There is absolutely bubkiss in that particular item in the proposed legislation that would do anything to try and identify these psychotic mass killers before they actually go out and become mass killers. While acknowledging that this major investment comes about as close to zero as possible in actually achieving the objective, which would be to identify these people in advance and have some mechanism or means to stop them, while admitting that it doesn't do anything, <laughs> not even remotely like that, I need to acknowledge that I'm not necessarily being critical because doing that is virtually impossible. So while the public is screaming, you have to identify these people in advance and stop them. When you get into how you would actually do that and you break it down item by item, it, it, these, any proposed mechanisms you simply can't do them. We're a nation where people have constitutional rights. They have enumerated constitutional rights, non-enumerated constitutional rights, unalienable rights. 
And you can't just do whatever you want to somebody because you think, you know, I don't think that guy's quite right. I have concerns. So what? You have concerns. He has rights. We don't have a pre-crime unit here. So, yeah, it's virtually impossible to do what a lot of people are clamoring to have done. Next up, closing the so-called boyfriend loop. <laughs> okay, so the, the courts are going to slaughter this one. If this, is, if this even passes, I don't know if it's going to wind up in any actual bill that needs to get voted on because it's, it's just legally, it's so unsound, the courts are never going to let it fly. So here's the way this works. Under federal law, a person is prohibited from purchasing or owning a firearm for a period of time if they have been convicted or pled guilty to domestic violence in terms of someone they're cohabitating with, someone they're married to. There's some legal process, even if it's not technically marriage, even if it's a state legal partnership, anything like that. Or they have a child together. And if any of those situations exist and they're convicted or plead guilty for domestic violence, then they cannot own or they cannot purchase or possess a firearm for a certain period of time. Without going into all of the background legality, the reason for that is the, the marriage or a state legal partnership or the birth of a child over which the state has superior interest. Yeah, that's what I say. We, we don't want to get into that. I know that's going to chap a lot of people when I say that the state has a superior interest to the parents, but legally, it is true. Right or wrong, that is the current legal landscape. So with these things, cohabitating, legal agreement that involves the state or the birth of a child, these things give the state either a good deal of authority or a toehold of authority. So what this supposed loophole is now is they want to do the same thing to people who are just dating. But there's not even a toehold of jurisdiction to do that. So they can talk about it. They can probably make a lot of people feel good by saying they're going to close this boyfriend loophole. And if they vote on it, it may even pass. I don't think it's going to be in the final proposed legislation, but we'll see. But if it does become law, it will not survive scrutiny by the courts. The next one, enhanced review process for buyers of firearms under the age of 21. What they mean by that is typically a juvenile's records are sealed, and that includes from the National Firearms Background Database. So what they're talking about doing now is that there will be a delay. And depending on circumstances, they say the delay will be three to 10 days when somebody under 21 goes to purchase a firearm so that if there's anything that they cannot see at the state level, that then they will have the authority by Congress to go to the state and say, you've sealed this and we want to see it anyway. Because if somebody did something when they were 15 or 16 or 17 or a day shy of 18, that we think should prohibit them from owning owning a firearm, usually, probably, for a period of time, not forever, then we want to see that and we want to stop guns from falling into the hands of people between the ages of 18 and almost 21. Will this fly? I don't know. Uh, you can bet your bottom dollar there's going to be lawsuits because people are going to say that those records are sealed by the state and the federal government has quite a bit of authority, but it does not have authority to go into the states and mandate that sealed records from a state court be opened because Congress says so. How that will play out, I wouldn't predict, but I can assure you there will be lawsuits. This is If that provision is in the legislation that's actually voted on, it will not go into effect without 
probably a number of court battles. I love this next one because of the sophistry of the wording. Clarifying the definition of a federally licensed firearm dealer. Okay, so there's there's no clarification, none at all, because who is and who is not a federally licensed firearms dealer is already very, very clear in the law. So there's no clarification. What they're talking about doing is they're talking about embracing a bunch of people that are not federally licensed firearms dealer, and the federal government has no jurisdiction, no basis in law to declare them federal firearms dealers. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I don't know what the number is today, but back, I remember when I was probably in my late 20s, there was a fixed number. I forget what it was, 12, 14, something like that. If you sold more than that number of firearms in a given year, then the government said that you were doing it with commercial interest in mind, and you were not just a guy selling your own property. You were then at that point considered by the government to be a firearms dealer, licensed or otherwise, and you need to go get licensed. What they're proposing in this uh, negotiated agreement is that people who just sell a couple of their own guns in a year have to be called federally licensed firearms dealer. And that's not going to fly. The courts... I'll tell you straight up, the courts, if, they, if they do that, the courts are going to strike that down consistently across the board. Wherever a lawsuit is filed, the courts are going to strike that down. And here's why. The Supreme Court has said that all courts have a duty to look at the substance rather than the form of a thing, whatever the thing is that's being presented to them. So in this case, the government's going to come along and it's going to say, okay, we use me as an example. Dave Champion sold a handgun, a shotgun, and a rifle because he didn't want them anymore. He was bored with them. He wanted to get that money so he could buy something else. So he sold those to a couple of friends. So the government's going to come along now and say, Dave Champion is now a federally licensed firearms dealer. That, that's the form. But the court is going to look at the substance and say, Mr. Champion, were you doing this for profit? No. Were you doing this as a livelihood? No. Was there any commercial interest for this in you? No. <laughs> and the courts are simply going to say, sorry, Congress, you can't do that. The substance is, using again myself as the example, Mr. Champion is not a firearms dealer. You cannot convert personal private activity because we have a constitutional right in America to acquire, to utilize in a way that doesn't harm others, and to dispose of our personal property. And firearms are as much personal property as anything else. You walk around your house and you'll go, oh, look, there's a bookshelf. That's personal property. Or anything that you might choose to sell tomorrow. The same thing is true of firearms that you own. They're personal property. And if somebody owns items of personal property and decides, you know what? I don't like that bookshelf anymore, or I don't like that end table anymore. I'm going to sell it and get a new one. It's no different than if a person says, you know what? I don't really like Glocks anymore, or I really love Glocks, so I'm going to sell my 1911. And then they go out and they sell one or more of their guns. There's no way Congress can convert the disposal of private property, which is a constitutional right, into a federally licensed activity. So yeah, if, if they go there, the minute that case walks in the door of a court, it is dead on arrival. And the last item, school security resources. Same thing we've heard of in the earlier items. This is no different than, you know, using the phrase major investment. They're just going to give school districts a bunch more cash, and it's going to be earmarked for campus security. End of story. And the reason for that is Congress has no authority over the physical infrastructure or policies of a school or school district. That's not part of Congress's constitutional authority. So all Congress can do is attach requirements 
to the giving of money. So Congress can say, if you do X, Y, and Z, then we're going to give you this much money to do it with. Nevertheless, the bottom line is this is just throwing more cash at the problem. And the occasions when throwing cash at a problem actually solved it are few and far between when government's involved. So that's the end of what's actually in the proposed legislation. That's it. If you were thinking there's going to be a lot more stuff, and if you're a pro-gun person, maybe a lot more bad stuff. If you're a pro-gun control person, maybe you're looking for a lot more to be in there, but that's it. So let's talk about the things that people have been talking about that did not wind up in the proposed legislation. First of all, expanded background checks. Let me explain what that means. You might think that if they were going to do a background check, again, I'll use myself as an example, on Dave Champion, maybe expanded background check meant they needed to go deeper or they needed to have more resources or whatever. That is not expanded background checks, at least in the context of how it's been talked about recently. What expanded background check means is it means that people who support that would like to see Anyone who sells a fire, remember I used myself as an example in the last section and I talked about if I wanted to sell a couple guns because they no longer interest me, I was bored with them and I wanted to get the money to maybe go buy another gun, something like that. I, not being a federally licensed firearms dealer, I don't have to run a background check on the person that I sell my personal private property to. Uh, There's people in the United States who want that. They feel that's critical. They feel that's important. It's also never going to happen. People really don't understand how the law operates. So they get an idea in their head and they go, this would be a great idea. This would solve the problem. And they have absolutely no awareness of whether that is constitutionally possible. This is a perfect example of that. People who want these expanded background checks and they think it's a nifty idea. Whether it is or is not a nifty idea is not the point. They think it's a nifty idea. So they just believe, voila, I say it's nifty. We should do it. It doesn't work that way. So Congress's authority to mandate a background check for the buyer of a firearm, that requirement can only be imposed on the firearms dealer, the federally licensed firearm dealer. The requirement isn't even upon the buyer. It's just very simply the requirement is upon the licensed dealer as a condition of maintaining that status as a licensed dealer. So if you come in and you say, hey, I'm a buyer and I say, no, I don't want you to do that. The, The licensed dealer just says that I'm not going to sell you the gun. But the responsibility is placed on the licensed dealer Because that's the only person within the 50 states when it comes to firearms that the federal government has authority over. The next item, an assault rifle ban. Okay, so... Yeah, this gets bandied about a lot. And you know, there was a while I was concerned that there was going to be an assault weapon ban. Not at this moment, but historically over the decades. However, due to the decisions of the Supreme Court, Heller and McDonald, that is never going to happen. Heller was the first case, McDonald the second. Heller was written by Scalia, and McDonald was written by Alito. And really the horsepower here is in the Heller case written by Scalia. If you've never read that decision, whether you're pro-gun, pro-gun control, go read it. The, The decision is 42 pages, if I remember correctly. And it's, it's long because Scalia goes through the history 
of arms, which is obviously much broader than just firearms. The history leading up to the time when the American people were dealing with with becoming their own nation, the states were going to become their own sovereign states, and how they saw arms and the type of arms and the carrying of arms and so forth. And Scalia goes through this history in quite some detail. And as he wraps up, Scalia says that the intent of the founding generation was that Americans be able to own military-type firearms so that they can fight against oppression if that day ever comes in the United States. Now, Scalia said, perhaps that is no longer practical in an age of tanks and drones and fighter jets and nuclear bombs. Perhaps with all of those things, having personal arms to go against the government is no longer practical. Perhaps. But Scalia said, whether or not it is practical, it remains the intentions of the men of the founding generation of this nation. And therefore, when we talk about the right to keep and bear arms, it includes military-type rifles. So you can imagine these Republican Democrat senators, and remember, Democrat senators are not like Democratic voters, okay? Democratic voters, just like Republican voters, are as ignorant as the day is long about this stuff. But of course, senators, they have staff, they have legal advisors, legal consultants, they have lawyers. There's the Congressional Research Service, which is a huge organization of attorneys and researchers that are required by law to furnish federal legislators with answers to law-specific questions. So a senator can say, as an example, to the Congressional Research Service, in light of Heller and McDonald, would we be able to enact a valid assault weapon ban that would stand scrutiny under the federal courts, probably going all the way to the Supreme Court? And the Congressional Research Service would have to tell those Democratic senators, if you read Heller, there is no way. As long as the court is going to adhere to Heller, which is a virtual certainty, then there's no way for an assault weapon ban to be considered constitutional. So that's why it's not in the package. The next one that many people would have liked to have seen in the legislation was a higher age, 21, not 18, to buy certain kinds of rifles. And the reason it's not in there is, again, this is very legally dicey. The Heller decision makes no distinction in the the rights we just talked about in the last section, makes no distinction about age. So in other words, you would have to get a judge, a federal judge, to agree that the founding generation, when they said these rights, including the right to own military-type firearms, are constitutionally protected individual rights, but if you're 20 and a half, you don't have that right. That would be a tough sell. In fact, I'm going to sit here and tell you that it's going to be very hard to find a federal court that's going to agree with that. And if you found one, found a district court that would agree with it, it would almost certainly be overturned on appeal, except perhaps the ninth. And then if it goes to the Supreme Court, yeah, it's not going to stand up. There was recently a decision three months, four months, five months ago. Sometimes they all blur together. (laughs) A federal judge actually struck down in an 
age-specific restriction on firearms ownership. In his dicta, he actually talked about the fact that people who were 16, 17, 18, 19, they were an integral part of creating this nation. They went to war. That was his point. So if under Heller, military-style firearms are an individual right to say that that right begins only at a later age than the age of legal adulthood, which is 18, again, a really tough sell and it's not going to happen. As you might be aware, someone under 21 cannot go into a licensed firearm dealer establishment and purchase a handgun until they are 21. And I believe that one of the reasons that you don't see this higher minimum age requirement in this proposed legislation is a court battle that would strike that down may also, in the the terms of unintended consequences, may also wind up being the basis to strike down the, the provision that currently exists that you have to be 21 to buy a handgun from a licensed firearms dealer. So for those who think that those sort of age restrictions are a good thing, to include a provision that might wind up striking down not only the new provision, but an existing age-specific provision yeah, that probably isn't desirable for that from that person's point of view. One of the reasons I'm a fervent supporter of the right to keep and bear arms is that I'm the gentleman who coined the adage, the government lies, lies all the time, and lies even when the truth would serve it well. I recently did a video of things that were considered for many, many years to be conspiracy theories. And the government said those are conspiracy theories until the information was declassified and we found out that uh, they weren't conspiracy theories at all. They were true. I'll put a link to that video down in the notes. However, because the government lies, lies all the time and lies even when the truth would serve it well, I feel it is imperative that not only do we have firearms for our own personal defense, but, go back to what Scalia said, Whether or not it is practical is not an issue that we need to discuss today. But if my government becomes, goes from lies all the time to becomes tyrannical, I believe it is not only my right, but it is my duty as an American to use whatever means possible to fight, to defeat that tyrannical government and preserve freedom and personal liberty for the American people. Whether or not that could be accomplished with personal arms is a subject for a whole other presentation. However, I think it is fair to say we can all agree in the absence of personal arms, that would be an absolute impossibility. Let me give you an example of uh, perhaps the largest worst, most damaging, most pervasive government disinformation, government lie that exists in the United States. And that is the government's narrative that if you go out and earn a living in the United States, that you owe the government some in the form of income tax. I think it is fair to say that the the fact that the United States public, the vast majority, believe that is true is a testament to how effective the government's 60, 70 year disinformation campaign has been. It's not just disinformation, but a fear generating campaign as well. But fortunately, 
we don't have to pick up arms to fight against that. Uh, if there was no alternative, I leave it to you to determine whether that would be worth fighting over. If you were having, you know, 12%, 13%, 20%, 30% of your income ripped away based on disinformation put out by the government, would that be worth killing and dying for? I don't know. But fortunately, we don't have to answer that question because all you have to do is pick up a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Myths. When you have completed it and you close that final page, you will know without a shadow of a doubt that everything you'd heard up until the moment <laughs> that you read that book, everything you heard was actually government disinformation on the subject. It didn't matter whether it came from your employer. It didn't matter whether it came from a public accountant. It didn't matter who you got it from. They were repeating to you the government's disinformation material. And when you close that final page of Income Tax Shattering the Myths, it won't be subjective. You won't be scratching your head. When, I wonder. Absolutely conclusive. There will be absolutely no doubt in your mind. Once you have all the information, you know what the law really says, and you know that the government's version of it is disinformation, then you can decide. You have the tools. The knowledge gives you tools. The knowledge is a tool. Then you can decide whether you want to continue to participate in the charade, whether you want to participate in the government scam, what I call the largest financial crime in the history of the world. Do you want to continue to be the victim of that? Or do you want to safely walk away, but you'll have the tools to make that decision? So I'm going to encourage you to go to drreality.news. That's drreality.news. Grab yourself a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist. If you add the coupon code TAXTRUTH, all one word, TAXTRUTH, I'll pick up the shipping for you. Thanks for being here.